This is not available for Kojet credit. Okay, we're honored to have today uh, Bill Richards, who is the founding partner of the law firm of Baskin Richards. I was afraid I was going to get that wrong, but I got it right, Baskin Richards. Uh, Susan and I saw him speak at the Attorney General's office, and I thought, we have to give this presentation for us if he'll do it. He came here and, and accepted um, the enormous gift of zero dollars. I, I gave him a bottle of water, uh, and that's it. Um, so, Mr. Richards has been an attorney for 29 years. He's a civil trial attorney. Uh, he was previously the senior litigation counsel for the civil division of the Attorney General's office. He has argued before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and the Supreme Courts of Arizona, Utah, and Nevada. And he is an adjunct professor teaching trial advocacy and practical courtroom skills at the Sandra Day O'Connor Law School. So let's welcome Mr. Richard. Okay, so I normally don't have any problem being heard, um, but I don't think I'm like officially mic'd here other than on the podcast. So uh, if anyone has a problem, just tell me to speak up. Um, I've had many judges tell me to speak up in the past before and other things as well. So I, I'm, I'm not offended by it. Um, you'll see me move around a little bit. Uh, I have a bad habit. My wife actually hates it. She thinks that, you know, I'm very distracting when I speak because I tend to move a lot. Um, I'm sorry, that's who I am, I've tried. The only uh, other option you have is, and I, I've tried to just like tie myself to a podium, and then I look like, uh, I kind of look like this, like I'm in a hurricane, and <laughs> trying to hang on for dear life, and I figured that's worse, so. A um, couple other caveats. Uh, number one, I appreciate the fact that Charles invited me. I was very excited for the opportunity, particularly when he said that you know I was gonna get to as a trial attorney, tell a whole bunch of judges what I think they should do and what I think they may be doing wrong. I don't get that opportunity very often. Normally, I feel like you know, I'm on the other end of that conversation. But in reality, actually, this is a bit of an experiment for me. Okay? I've taught a variation of this same presentation for a couple of years now. And it's evolved over time, um, but it's always been taught to folks that are either at the very beginning of their legal career or who are advocates, who are trial advocates, people that are you know, on the opposite side of the bench. Um, and because of my own personal experiences and my experimentation with all of this sort of thing, I feel fairly confident in teaching some of these things to those folks. But what I also realize is, you know, we've got a bunch of people in here that our judicial officers. Now, how many, I know Charles said there's kind of a variety of folks, how many folks are full-time judging? Okay, and we've got pro tems, right? Um, and we got some people who do mediations, okay? Hearing um, officers. Hearing officers. And hearing officers as well? Okay, so uh, with the exception of the mediators, I do a lot of mediations, you know, I, 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 I by the way, I, I am a judge pro tem, I've been a judge pro tem for a long time with the, the Superior Court, however, I don't trust myself in anything other than civil work, and so because the rules don't allow me to really act as a judge in proceedings without disqualifying myself from the work that I normally do, I pretty much just do uh, settlement conferences uh, all the time. Um, so I know the mediation gig somewhat, uh, but what I uh, truly admit that I'm ignorant of 
is you know, how uh, things really work for a hearing officer or a judge or a judge pro tem, someone who's actually having to sit there with the bullets flying and make the decisions on the fly, okay? Um, and I recognize that's very different than what I do. Now, granted, you know, I am very fortunate. I do get in court a lot with my practice. Um, I have completed a jury trial in January. I've got three starting in July, a couple weeks. I have one in August, and I have one a week after that in September, and it looks like they're all going to go. I I'm very fortunate because I love that part of it. But I also recognize that, you know what? Almost every single one of those cases has been years in the making. I've got a long time to think about what I'm doing, okay, without the arguments that I'm going to make. And so even if there's some sort of objection, you know, I will probably have thought about what my response is going to be to that for a long time beforehand. And if a witness is going to behave in a particular way and they're going to be particularly combative to me, uh, I, I'm going to know that. You know, I will have had time to do my discovery, to sit with them for hours, right, whether they're my witness or someone else's. Um, I will have gotten to know them, and I can predict a lot of things. So I have a real advantage. When you're the person making the decision on the fly, I think you're in a very different position uh, because you're having to make evaluations of individuals, um, of how to control the proceedings, uh, of, of how to uh, motivate, persuade, you know, change people's direction, take control back uh, over something or somebody who may have kind of gone off the rails, and you got to do it very, very quickly. And I recognize that's a very, very different form of decision making and acting than what I normally do. Okay. So everything that I have studied and I'll present today and we'll talk about um, is originally was developed in the context of what you know, a trial attorney does. Um, not just in the courtroom, but before that. You know, when we're dealing with opposing counsel and dealing with uh, you know, difficult parties, difficult witnesses, people in depositions, those sorts of things. Um, it's, it's all been originally based on that. But I have an idea. And this is kind of an experiment for me. And I recognize that's the last thing you ever want to hear from either your surgeon, right? Yeah. <laughs> hey, congratulations. This is an experiment for me. Or, or possibly from your CLE presenter, who you have to sit through for two hours. Okay? Uh, I get it. But uh, what I would like to do is, is try and take what I think works many times, or can work, or can be helpful, to the uh, advocate and transfer that into uh, the different role that someone acting as a judge, in particular a hearing officer, uh, has and the role that they have to play. Um, and in particular, we are talking about dealing with what I call combative uh, people. Uh, people who are, uh, in one way or another, behaving in a negative way, some way you don't want them to behave. They are you know, either uh, emotion, overly emotional, they're refusing to answer questions. They're trying to be heard and interrupting uh, over other people. You know, they're calling names. Um, you know, that never happens in court, right? No, never? I've certainly had it happen in, I've had it happen to me. <laughs> I've had other counsel call me names. In fact, not very long ago, very recently. Um, in fact, you're going to see an email from another counsel that I got uh, very recently. Um, so uh, it, it happens. These type of things happen. They happen all the time. And the question is really, though, what do we do about them? And we'll talk about why that's important, why do we care, and all those things. But I'm going to leave you uh, with, with this idea from the start. And I'd really like you to think about this 
Um, and I'd like to get as much feedback as I possibly can from you all because I would love to, you know, sort of take my experiment a little bit further. And I'd love to kind of know uh, what of the things that we're going to talk about today you already think about, you already do, you've already incorporated. Whether you do it, you know, through some grand plan or scheme or study, or you just kind of do it automatically. It just comes naturally to you. Or you've just developed it, or you've seen other people do it. You've seen it, watched other judges do it. You said, hey, that works pretty well. Or someone gave, me, gave you some advice on how to deal with someone who's being particularly difficult uh, with you, or with your staff, for that matter. Um, and I'd like to get some feedback on that, uh, because what we're really talking about here, you know, I think is, is probably really trying to sharpen the knife to a really fine edge, okay? Uh, you all have a lot of skills. You all have a lot of experience. And no, it's not just a kind way to say you all look kind of old, all right? Um, but, but the reality is I know there's a huge amount, a huge wealth of experience in this room and strategies and techniques, and you've all given these things probably lots and lots of thought. Um, so I, I'd love to hear some feedback on that, okay? One more caveat before I get started. Um, I give a lot of CLEs. Uh, I always joke, I'm over at the AG's office all the time giving CLEs. And uh, I work there, I love the place, best job ever, um, and I love going back. But I, I often joke with them that, you know, I think they probably wonder if I really have a job, uh, or if all I do is, you know, go out and talk to people about how I think they should practice. Um, not true, I have, I have a job, I have a full-time job, but I really do enjoy these type of presentations, particularly because I get a lot out of them myself. And because of that, um, I don't normally tend to talk about things that I think I have mastered or that I really think I know everything there is to know about. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that's a very, very short list. Okay? Uh, the number of things that I really think I've mastered, despite you know, my years of practice, is very, very small. Um, but second, you know, there's a piece of me that uh, probably is, you know, has a little attention deficit issue. Um, I get very bored uh, thinking about or talking about things that I think I know quite a bit about. And so instead, you know, I like to create presentations and talk about things that I struggle with personally, okay, that I've had lots of problems with personally, and that I need to get better at, and I recognize I need to get better at. And this is one of those areas, okay, dealing with difficult people, uh, particularly when I'm dealing with a difficult party, a difficult witness, somebody who just wants to fight everything, they want to... Uh, you know, they want to battle, they don't want to answer things, and particularly those people who just want to lie all the time. And I run across a lot of those, okay? Um, dealing with those folks has always been very difficult for me. I have a very visceral, emotional reaction to that sort of thing, and it's not a healthy one. It's not a positive one. Um, and guess what? I bet it's one that a lot of you share, or did at least at some point in time, until you probably got wiser than me. Okay. Um, what I've learned, though, over time is that despite the fact that you know this is, comes very, very hard to me, that I, I find it difficult to uh, really control myself to the level I need to to bring all the techniques to bear to control someone else. The reason I have that problem is probably because I'm a normal human being. You know, we are all wired to react negatively to that generally. Now, I have met some people who I think are, you know, above the, above the grade. They get it. Nothing, they're unflappable. You know, they're totally in control. Their emotions no, never override anything. But that's the very, very, very small minority of people out there. 
And I actually think it's an even smaller, this is my personal opinion, smaller minority of people in the legal profession. Because I think most people in the legal profession tend to be folks that are pretty competitive, particularly in the trial litigation type of context. They're pretty competitive folks. They're people that you know care a great deal about what they do. They take it very seriously. They expect and would hope that others would take it just as seriously. They respect the process and the importance of what we do, trying to actually get to the truth of the facts of a matter and come up with the best legal decision you know, that we possibly can, the most fair decision that we can under the circumstances. And I think it's very frustrating for us just sort of naturally. But I also think there's that really subconscious part of all of us that is very, very dangerous um, in, in what we do. And it can be very counterproductive. Now, I've given a talk, and I'm not going to give it today. Uh, I, I've given a talk on, uh, to, to attorneys on you know, a lot of neuropsychology, uh, a lot of like, recent developments and research in just basic human uh, brain function. And by the way, I have no, no uh, real um, place giving that sort of a talk. This is literally like a hobby for me. Right? I have no uh, academic background in it, but I find it fascinating and I'm constantly reading about it and I listen to podcasts and I you know, look at research reports all the time and, and there's some really fascinating things out there. Um, but I'm going to share just a little bit of that with you uh, before you know, we're done here today. And I'm going to hold back on that just a little bit because I want to give you some other introductory things first. But you know, I think that what I deal with is really part of just how humans are made and it's how you're all made for the most part and it's how, and I apologize for you know comparing you to me I, I understand there may be an insult there um, but the reality is we're all not that different and it's also how most of the people who appear before you are generally made and generally think and their brains automatically work okay at the subconscious level and that's oftentimes what's driving I think a lot of this sort of combativeness and things that we, we deal with. So um, let me start, though, with a quick survey here. Um, how many of you would say that on a, let's start, let's start big, on a, on a monthly basis that you have to personally interact with or intervene in somebody who is being very combative, difficult, fighting, um, and I'm not talking about your family members, okay? I get that, that's a daily thing, okay? But I'm talking about at your, at your work, in your profession, right? How many of you on a monthly basis deal with that? Pretty much everybody? Yeah? Okay, uh, let's bring it down a little further. How many of you deal with that on a weekly basis? Got a couple? Anyone think about a, a daily basis? Anyone have that experience? No? Okay. All right, so weekly is probably about the most, but that's pretty frequent, right? I mean, if you're having to deal with someone who is, you know, unpleasant, difficult, fighting, you know, that, that sort of thing on a weekly basis, you know, that, that, can, that can disrupt things significantly. Um, in my practice, I'll tell you, I, I'd probably put it at about weekly. I mean, there are some cases that I have, you know, particular people involved in, and if I'm really working on that case pretty heavy, it may be daily for a while. Um, but, but I think we all sort of experience these things. And just to give you an example of the type of things we're talking about, I'm going to give you a few examples here, okay? The first thing I'm going to give you um, is, uh, I'm going to give you a copy of an email that I received recently. Um, if I can make my PowerPoint work. 
I apologize. Okay. Which button did you hit, Charles? Uh, the left mouse one. There we go. You can't read this very well, so I'm going to read it to you. I apologize that the PowerPoint didn't come up very well, but this is an email I just received on Tuesday, May 21st. Um, this was immediately following a hearing, okay? Uh, this attorney, other attorney was involved in. Um, Bill, and I've redacted it to you know, protect the names of people involved in issues. Um, but Bill, that you, and he named some other people, and perhaps others have been fighting with someone else about issues that don't matter and committing malpractice on your respective clients on the issues that you and your law firm are clearly not competent to handle is your problem and likely results in your law firms having a material conflict of interest. Uh, talks about some other firms presumably have that expertise in-house and that now two years after your client of her own volition and not with your advice is asking for some sort of relief as further evidence of your malpractice and lack of competence in this area of law. I guess wasting everyone's money with putting your associate to work on issue X was not the wisest use of your client's resources as you let Rome burn on your malpractice. <laughs> Anyone know what the point there was? Yeah? The point was to get you to not focus on the issues and get mad at them. That, that may have been the point. That may have been the point. Um, Spoken by a true mediator. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd like to say that this is completely unusual. Um, unfortunately, it's not. You know, uh, despite all the ethical rules that we have in place that, you know, talk about professionalism and all that, um, we sometimes get messages like this. We sometimes get them in person, right? I hear things like this in court. I have had, you know, more than once, another attorney stand up in court and tell the judge, you know, everything that he just said is a lie, Your Honor. It's a complete misrepresentation of fact. It's false. It's a fraud on the court. You know, now, I, those are pretty serious allegations, right? I mean, if those allegations were true, I should be in big, big trouble. Um, you know, they've never been true, uh, and I would never bring myself to ever, I, I couldn't bring myself to ever make those sort of accusations. I'm not sure if I make those accusations if I thought they were true. Um, but we get these things, and we have to deal with them, right? And, and it doesn't just come from opposing counsel. Sometimes it comes from witnesses. And I'm going to show you uh, a clip or two here from... Uh, these are deposition clips, but they were used as evidence in this jury trial I had in, in January. Um, these are deposition clips, a testimony from the defendant. I represented the plaintiff. Uh, my client was a, uh, another attorney here in town. He was suing for defamation that had occurred. Uh, he was uh, uh, a uh, uh, president of uh, his HOA um, and uh, another member of the uh, community. Uh, had um, defamed him uh, with, uh, in particular, newsletters that were being sent around making all kinds of accusations, particularly accusations about, you know, things that you don't do as an attorney, right? That it would be very, very bad for you to do as an attorney. Um, and uh, he brought a defamation claim <coughs> against this individual, and um, we ended up deposing uh, her for um, a number of hours. And again, this is trial test. This became trial testimony, became used uh, in the trial. So give me one second. I've got to switch over here to the trial director presentation for a minute. 
before if you close out of it ah let's try that This is extremely dramatic. <laughs> it's a great video. We've got a, a disappearing mouse. Court, by the way, I bring along someone who can run this thing. I never touch it myself. Sorry, but 
Because you are very insulting, boorish man. And you have been badgering me since the moment I walked in here. I have never been treated by anyone the way you have treated me today. I consider you to be an abusive man, and I don't really deal well with abusive men like you. So if I have been rude to you, I apologize, but you have been very rude to me. I was talking to you about Mr. Castleman. I just asked a yes or no question, um, but <laughs> there were there were points where you believed Mr. Castleman didn't have any integrity, right? Any integrity is broad. Well, there were points. Broad, B-R-O-A-D. There were points when you questioned whether he had integrity, right? I'm not sure if that's exactly what the point was. And what does this have to do with this case? Mm-hmm. Show you one more. <laughs> okay. So who was running that? I was just saying in general. I mean, let's be real. I'm not a little kid, and neither are you, Mr. Richards. So I just meant, in general, walking around, running. Obviously, people, I don't think anybody was running. So let's not take it out of context, and let's not play with words at this point, because I'm getting really tired of you. So the point is, you were asking me about image in class. You're trying to pin me to something. And you're, not, you're going nowhere. I already answered the question, and I am finished. So for your question, move on to something that's really substantial. <coughs> And actually relevant to the issue. Yeah, relevant to the issue. This is how you do this. You're like this little boy that's trying to grab onto these little things. Like, you know, you must have been a bully in school, weren't you? (laughs) Are you done? Well, I could keep going on, but I'll try to control my topic. If if you're not finished, you can finish your answer. No, I'm just telling you, you're just bullying me, and you are picking a little stuff to try to make your points to try to win a case. You're not going to win a case by picking on some little sentence. That's not how you win a case. That's not how you win a case. Um, only thing is, the jury awarded $1.5 million to my client in that case. Um, a million of which is punitives, actually. Um, so the prediction was wrong, I guess. Uh, but the point, you know, is you've all seen that sort of thing, right? I, I assume. Um, you know, this is what we deal with. Uh, we deal with people who, you know, don't want to answer questions, or you know, they want to be on the tack, they want to be in control uh, of the conversation. You know, they want to tell their version of things. Um, they believe that you know you are victimizing them, even as a judge. You know, I, I've certainly seen that. I've seen people who feel very victimized by the fact that you know the judge won't listen to me. The judge won't let me tell my story. Um, the judge, you know, doesn't understand what the issues are. A judge has never been in my position before. You know, all those sorts of things, uh, and they oftentimes bring out the worst in people, and they bring out you know uh, lack of cooperation, combativeness, anger. A resentment, you know, name-calling, all those sorts of things. Um, so these are things that we deal with in the real world, and they're very important, I think, in particular with, with judicial officers and mediators, 
because you're there for a very important reason, right? We, we don't have this system just because we want to have a system. We have a system because it keeps our society working, right? It, it solves problems that we can't solve ourselves. Um, we've all agreed that, you know, this is how we as a group of people, as a community living together, are going to resolve things. And it's very important that the system work as well as possible. We all recognize it's not perfect, okay? It's far from perfect. But if we work really hard at it, and if we get as much cooperation from everybody working in the system as we possibly can, it works pretty well, at least in my personal humble opinion. It works pretty well to resolve things, to resolve really important issues. And by the way, you know, another thing that I always keep in mind is important is a relevant, relative term. Okay? There may be things that to a litigant are the most vital, important thing in their life, right? But to me as the outside observer, would it make a difference? Probably not, okay? It doesn't mean anything though, because it's their problem, it's their issue, it's their perspective that's at stake at the time. All right, so let me see if I can get my PowerPoint back up here. So what I just touched on a little bit, Yvonne, thanks, and, and I think this is critical. Um, I, I think that uh, you know, we all bring our own baggage into every situation. Uh, and I talked to you a little bit before about you know, our own sort of autonomic nervous system, fight or flight mechanisms, all this subconscious stuff that is going on in our brains and is leading us to make conclusions and to take actions and to say things. You know, you, you ever get in a, an argument with somebody and, you know, bef before you uh, even have a chance to think about it, you're saying something you regret, okay? Uh, you know, you're, you're making that, you're, or you're, you're raising the, the level of the conversation to a point that really probably isn't appropriate um, and that you regret, uh, but, you know, when you think back on it, you go, gee, I, I just went there automatically. I, you know, it wasn't like I consciously decided to say that really mean, insulting thing. Um, again. You know, I'm, I'm projecting myself on you all. These things that I do all the time, maybe you don't. Um, but, but I get there all the time. Um, and it's because, you know, my brain, it sounds silly, but my brain has a mind of its own, okay? I'm not in total control there, right? There are a lot of aspects of what happens in my cognition here that are on autopilot um, and that I can't control uh, without really, number one, conscious control, uh, which I have to practice and by putting inputs into what I consider to be that programming so that when my natural thinking kind of fires automatically, it is uh, programmed to consider things that I wouldn't normally consider. And I, I think that we have to have an understanding about everyone we're dealing with. And I'm, I, I always hesitate because I think, you know, 
some people are just jerks, okay? Let's face it. There are people out there in the world. There's lots of them who, you know, they're just jerks. They're just not nice people. They're not good people, and, or, or they're broken, right? And, and you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to mental illness. Uh, uh, certainly dealt with a lot of that, you know, my own family and, and extended uh, family and relations and things and, and seen it in clients, and, and I'm very, very sympathetic to it. Um, but the reality is there are some people that, you know, have very, very serious problems, and uh, they, they are on autopilot in many respects in a very negative way, okay? Um, but there's a lot of other people who are on <laughs> autopilot in a way that is negative, but it is not necessarily beyond their control. Um, but we've got to find a way to help them get control over that. Right? And that's the hard part. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind why people may be behaving the way that they are. And this is when I talk about reframing the perspective, because the natural perspective for me is this person is behaving this way because they're a juror, right? Because they're just a nasty person, because they don't know how to get along with people, because, you know, uh, they're not as smart as I am. Um, I, I have very negative automatic reactions to things like that. Um, and I, I make assumptions, some of which may be true, a lot of which may not be, okay? A lot of which are very just sort of self-interested, um, you know, based on my own ego, uh, I'm, I'm just protecting myself, um, and that's it. And I'm not really thinking about what may actually be triggering things here. The problem with that is, when I'm not thinking about what may be triggering things, and I'm not making predictions about that, I'm not trying to understand what's actually going on, then how do I ever develop techniques or implement techniques to combat it, to, to address it, right? I don't, because I make bad assumptions, and I make bad reactions based on my bad assumptions, and pretty soon, you know, everything has gone to hell in a handbasket, and, and nothing's getting resolved, nothing's, nothing's moving forward, and I'm not doing my job. And in your case, you know, you're not doing your job. Uh, if, in fact, you know, things get out of control and you can't bring control back to the situation, back to the person who, who doesn't want to, to cooperate. So I always encourage people, you know, from the first, from the get-go, when you encounter this sort of situation, you got to make sure that your perspective is open to a lot of different possibilities that may be going on here. And you're not making snap judgments about, this is why this person is behaving this way. You know, this person is my enemy, right? This person is just a, you know, they're just sour and nasty and, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, there may be lots of reasons for it. I'm not suggesting that they're necessarily good reasons. You should feel sorry for them. You should immediately develop this you know, deep, personal, sincere empathy for them. But you should understand, or try and understand, what may be motivating those things. Only then can you really react to them in a way that you know, isn't kind of your natural negative um, you know, human reaction to it. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about those things, the things that um, may uh, uh, involve what I call step one, which is identifying the problem. Okay? You know, what, is this, what is this thing we even call combativeness, and why should we care about addressing it at all? Well, we've talked about why we should care, because it gets in the way of us doing our jobs and improving, uh, improving our little piece of society uh, through, through what we do on a daily basis. So I want to talk to you about some examples um, first, uh, of where you may see this manifest itself. Um, you may see all kinds of, of, of these different reasons manifest themselves. So let's see if any of you have ever seen this before. I call this the refuser. You know, here's a question. Miss Jones, is that your signature on page four of this contract? Answer? I'm not sure. Uh, Miss Jones, I'm going to need you to look at the signature on page four, please. Uh, and then answer if it is yours. Answer? 
I don't need to look at it because I already told you I'm not sure if I ever signed anything. You're not sure if you ever signed anything at all in your entire life? I'm too stressed right now to remember anything clearly, and I want to be only accurate, so I'm not going to say I did something I don't remember doing. Anyone ever get that? You know, the witness that just, they're not going to answer, you know, no matter what you ask? Um, or a party that, that won't answer, won't give you a straight answer? I call this one the failed memory. Um, Mr. Smith, did you ever tell your supervisor that you thought your coworker was harassing you? I'm not sure I know what you mean. Mr. Smith, while you were employed at Tarp Industries Limited in 2015, who was your supervisor? I don't recall. Did you know at one time who your supervisor was? I'm not sure. Is it your testimony that Tarp Industries never told you who your supervisor was? I don't remember if they did. Is it your recollection that you did not have a supervisor at all? I don't recall. <laughs> Now, I can ask a question of you. And again, you know, I apologize for making assumptions about how long you all have been practicing. Um, but, you know, we've got, some, we've got some folks here that have some, some years and have seen the, you know, the landscape, legal landscape change over time. And I certainly share that with you. And I've noticed something, at least in my practice. This person, the failed memory, the I don't recall, the I don't remember, right? We've got an epidemic of that right now, at least in my. Is that, does anyone share that? I mean, I don't remember it. 30 years ago, it wasn't that, from my perspective, it wasn't that way. You had some of that, right? But now, I literally will go through depositions where every second answer is I don't recall, I don't remember, I don't know. All right? Um, anyone else experience that? And I don't know that it's, it's a big change in witnesses, but I attribute it to the attorneys that are, that are coaching them. I mean, like, there you go. Oh. That's it. I consider this to be coaching. Okay? It's, a, it's an ethics problem, not a witness problem. And, and I don't disagree. In fact, that's exactly where I, where I was going. Thank you very much. Um, I attribute this to coaching. Okay? And I attribute it also to the fact that, you know, we've got so much more access as counsel now to advice on how to prepare a witness. You know, we, we used to get a few CLEs where people would come through town, you know, and they'd they give you advice on you know, how you prep your witnesses. But now, I don't know if you've checked you know, YouTube lately, but you can find uh, videos. I know attorneys in town who regularly use the videos to prep their witnesses, who literally put their witnesses in rooms. They told me, oh, you know, I got this great video, and I just put the witness in a room with it before they testify, and I have them watch the video. What do you think those videos are recommending to people? Right? They're recommending that, hey, look, you know what? Sometimes the safest answer, often the best answer is, I don't recall, or I don't know, or I don't remember. Because guess what? You haven't committed anything, and then you know, when your attorney gets you back up on the stand, guess what? You can suddenly remember. Uh, okay? They can ask you the precise question that gets you to the real answer, and there's nothing wrong with that. Because you, know, you don't really get impeached when you say, I don't know, I don't remember, because all someone has to ask you is, well, why do you suddenly recall it now? And you say, you made me think about it. You really made me think about it when you asked me that question. I didn't, I didn't remember it at first, but boy, I thought about it for a while, and then when my attorney asked me that question, I suddenly remembered, because I was thinking about that. Okay? Uh, and I think, I do believe, I think there is a rash of coaching out there on, on this. Um, now, you know, 
I found out a way to combat it that I think is pretty good. And it's in your materials, I believe. Um, and I've got a slide on it too, but I'm gonna go ahead and jump ahead since I'm talking about it anyway. Um, and this is not my idea, okay? I stole this one uh, from where? The internet. <laughs> you know, I do troll on the internet all the time. I shouldn't say troll, I don't respond to anything, but I, I look all the time at what other attorneys are out there saying and what tips they're giving, you know, for different things that frustrate me. And I, I, this, this issue was really bothering me. I mean, I, I was just, you know, I was running up against a brick wall all the time with people who just kept saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't recall, I don't recall, I don't recall. And, and first of all, by the way, does anyone ever say that in real life? You know, do you ever have a conversation with somebody in real life where they constantly say, I don't recall? <laughs> we don't speak that way, not in America today. So when I see that, I immediately think, coached. Right? This person is with coach. They're following a script. Now, do I get angry at that? Uh, at them? No, not necessarily. Because, you know what? Witnesses have a tough job in many respects. Particularly witnesses that are not a party. Although they, you know, parties have a tough time too. But we put those people in a very unnatural environment. Okay? You know? How often do you ever have a conversation with somebody where they say, no, no, I'm sorry. You can't answer anything I don't ask you. Okay? Just answer my question. Or, you know, there's a risk that someone in a robe with a gavel is going to lean over and say, hey, hey, stop. We don't want to hear that. Just say yes or no. Right? We don't have, that's not a normal conversation. Um, it's a very constrained, unnatural environment. It's very stressful. Anyone here ever been a witness, by the way? Yeah? Now, I've never been a witness and, you know, knock on wood, I won't be. Um, I've talked to other, I have attorney friends who have been witnesses who described it as like the most terrifying event of their life. Um, did anyone else have a problem with that? Anyone else find it was very, very difficult? Frightening at all? Stressful? No? Um, the, the experiences people relate to me have been, you know, usually where they were testifying on behalf of a family member, right? They had a family member that, you know, either they're testifying as a, a, a witness in a criminal case, or in a, in a large civil case where their um, family members, you know, uh, claims depended on, their, they thought, depended on their testimony, and they found it incredibly stressful because they thought they might say the wrong thing. They might say something that screwed everything up and, and really hurt their, their family member or friend. Um, I will also tell you, anyone here ever examined a, a lawyer? Anyone ever got to examine a lawyer? What was your experience? You want to answer the question. Okay. Um, that is not my experience, but I could see that happening. Uh, I will tell you, I've, I've, I've had the good fortune to get to examine multiple lawyers in my career. Um, and while I've had a little bit of that, a little bit of the game playing, um, I've actually found that on average, most lawyers take that very oath very seriously. They actually do. And they have a really hard time. Uh, you know, I, I, I a long time ago started telling uh, everyone that works for me, never, ever have an in-house attorney verify anything, ever, okay? Because I've had other people's in-house attorneys, you know, general counsel verify their disclosure statements or their responses to interrogatories, you know, I hear by swear this is all true. Well, guess what that means? I can depose that person, right? To be clear, they, they talked, but they didn't answer the question. Okay, okay. Well, I've had, I've had a lawyer break down crying and apologizing because they had verified things that they didn't actually have a basis for. Um, I've had other attorneys who, you know, it took a while to get there, but once I got there, man, they just admitted 
everything. Um, I, I actually think, you know, depending on who you are, uh, the, the, the witness experience can be very different, but I think for most people who are not experienced with it, right, who don't, who don't sort of understand it, it's very easy to be coached like this, right? Because you're getting advice from a professional, someone who knows what they're doing, and they're telling you, this is how you answer questions, right? This is what you've got to be careful about, and it's fine to say I don't recall, it's fine to say I don't know. I'm a witness. I'm, you know, I may have a PhD in you know, rocket science, but that doesn't mean that I am confident with how I'm supposed to behave as a witness. So you've got a professional who's supposed to know what they're doing. They're telling me what to do. I'm going to do it. Um, and I think it's happening all over the place. Uh, now, here's my, here's my answer to this. Okay, um, My answer to this is very simple. And it is to prepare the witness as early as possible with an understanding that this is not okay, that this is not part of their job, and that their job as a witness is to actually answer my questions. And it's very simple, and I think I've given you the script in your materials, but here's what I tell them. When I start a deposition now, almost every deposition, okay, and I will do this in court if I've got a cold witness, or even if I have a witness that I've seen before, I think this is okay. And I want to make sure, by the way, anyone out here who would make a ruling on an objection to this, I'd like to know if anyone thinks there's a problem with me asking these sorts of questions. But I usually start my examination by saying, you know, Mr. Jones, um, you understand that I'm going to ask you some questions that you're going to be expected to answer, right? Yes? Okay. And I don't imagine that you've been coached at all to say I don't know or I don't recall or I don't remember, but to make sure we all understand your role as a witness, you understand that um, your job is to give me the facts that you know in response to my question. Every single witness I've ever asked that of says, yes, I understand that. Okay, and you understand also then that if you answer one of my questions by saying I don't know or I don't recall or I don't remember, that means you have no facts at all that would respond to my question. Again, every witness I've ever had is that I've used it with said, yeah, I, I get it. So, Mr. Jones, when I ask you a question about something and you know some facts that you could give me in response to that, you'll tell me at least what you remember, right? Now, I will sometimes get an objection at that point from counsel. You know, witness has no idea what you're going to ask them about. That's a bad question. You know, okay, fine. Your objection's noted. You know, Mr. Jones, is that okay? And I always get the same answer, which is yes, okay. So we're clear then. The only time you're going to say I don't recall or I don't remember or I don't know is where really you have no facts at all that you could give me in response to my question. And I, again, I always get the yes, okay. And I'm telling you, I'm not guaranteeing that that works every time, but it has worked pretty dang well. Um, I have now, you know, I, I've now conditioned the witness to understand that in our relationship here, you know, they're there to give me at least what they have, at least what they know. And most people, not everybody, not the attorney, you know, he's trying to play games with you certainly, but, but most people, they're going to feel guilty when you ask them the question about just saying, I don't know or I don't recall. Um, I, I, again, all I can give is my own personal experience. I've been using this now for probably about a year, um, and I had some really bad, really bad examples of this, and I had some examples in one case in particular where we had sued four individuals, and I got the first two 
and this is all that happened, right? This is all I got out of them. And that's when I actually went and searched the internet and uh, does anyone have any answers to these things? And I started adopting it for the next two defendants. And it worked with them. And they had been you know, represented by the same attorneys. I guarantee you they'd had the same prep sessions. You know, everything was the same, but their answers were very, very different. And they were much more forthcoming with things. So I think you have to change the expectations. You know, again, the witness who's coming in, who's stressed out, who's relying upon an attorney who gave them advice and they think they're the professional and they know what they're doing, it's very natural for them to feel comfortable answering like this, right? They don't feel like they're lying. They don't feel like they're, they're letting anyone down. They're not doing their job as a witness. But when you change that dynamic and you get them to agree that, hey, when I ask you questions, you know, the least you can do is give you the facts that you have. Um, you, you change that completely. And now, you know, they're no longer just saying, well, I feel comfortable with this advice I got, and that's the right way to do things. And they've now actually agreed, and that's the key, I think, is you get them to agree, this is how we're going to do this. This is how we're going to play this. You know, you and I are going to have this conversation, and this is, this is how you're going to respond. Um, and it's a respectful request. Uh, and I think once people make that commitment, it really works. It really does, it really does work longer term. So, uh, one tip on that. Let me go on to the next form, uh, the overanalyzer. Ms. Hayward, yes or no? Did you know the car you sold my client had a failing transmission? You're going to have to be more specific. Before you put the car out for sale on your lot, did you have it inspected for mechanical issues? Well, that depends on what issues you're talking about. Did you have a mechanic look at it for anything? You mean, did one of my mechanics see the car from the outside, or drive it, or something else? Okay, let's try it this way. Describe for me the type of things you pay your mechanics to do for your car line. Uh, brake jobs, fill up fluids, change the oil in cars. Okay, okay, yes or no? Did you have any of your mechanics do any of those things to the car you sold my client? not that simple. <laughs> by the way, you know, if by now you don't know that something bad is coming when you hear it's not that simple, right? If you don't know that someone is now just about to take whatever you've asked them and run off the other direction completely, um, you know, you just, you just haven't been doing it very long because that's, a, that's a, a real tell. It's not that simple. I can't just answer yes or no, right? That's another one. How often do you hear that from witnesses? Okay, you know, yeah, I'm gonna just ask you a yes or no question. Um, well, it's not that simple. I can't just, that can't be answered yes or no. Now, does anyone firmly in your heart of hearts believe that there are, you know, regularly just yes or no questions that cannot be answered yes or no? Yes, no, we got some debate, okay. Shaking your head, no? Someone? So I saw someone shaking their head, yeah? If you're a good lawyer, you know that every answer also includes it depends. <laughs> well, that's, that, that could be true. But the reality is, you know, uh, again, this is a technique I use with, with witnesses, and I'm sure a lot of you use this. Not, this is not you know, rocket science, it's not uncommon. But when I ask a simple yes or no question, and of course I try and keep my questions as simple and direct as possible, right? And if I ask a yes or no question, you know, were you driving the car? Yes or no? Um, and you get the answer of, 
You know, well, it's not that simple. You know, actually, three weeks ago, my brother borrowed the car, and, then, and I let them answer that. I'm not the guy that jumps in and says, you know, stop, stop, stop. That's not what I'm asking. Just answer yes or no. I let them answer. And then I say, I'm so sorry. I apologize. I wasn't clear. My question was, actually, what I meant to ask you was, were you driving the car, yes or no? And then sometimes you get the... Well, again, uh, driving the car, um, sitting in the car, I'm not sure. You know, actually, that car, I don't even know if you talk, we're talking about the same car now. And I let him go, and then I say, I apologize. Again, I, I, I apologize for not being clear. What I meant to ask you was, were you driving the car, yes or no? Now, on about the third time, okay, I've, I think I've accomplished one of two things, okay? I've either... Now they realize that they look like a fool, right? And they're going to actually answer my question. Or if they don't, what do they look like? To my trier fact, to my jury, yes, like a liar. They don't want to answer the question. And what's the answer? What, the answer is probably whatever I want them to answer, right? That's the, going to be the assumption. It's whatever you're fighting, whatever I'm trying to get you to answer, that's probably the real answer. And at that point, I will usually finally ask the judge, you know, Your Honor, could you ask the witness, please, to instruct the witness to answer yes or no? And I almost always get the judge at that point to say, because they're tired, and, and they're probably wondering, why did you let them go that long? Um, but, but, you know, I, that's, that's the technique I use with this particular person. But, uh, you know, you do have some people who, you know, they're not necessarily trying to lie. They're not necessarily trying to fight. But there are people that just, you know, they want to overanalyze absolutely everything. So, you know, this witness says... Um, you know, my mechanics do different things with different cars at different levels with different <coughs> parts. And sometimes they turn the car on, and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they drive the car, and sometimes they don't. Now you're trying to get me to say they did something specific with this car that they may not have done, so I'm going to need you to be clear with me. I can't say they did something or noticed something or let you use my answer to be a confession of something like that unless I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, let me be really, really simple and specific then. Did any of your mechanics change the oil in the car you sold my client? See again, I don't know what you mean by changing the oil. So they put a drop of new oil in, I don't know if that's changing the oil or not, and I don't want you to trap me, you know. And by the way, uh, I, I hear that in particular when I've done the, the, you know, you're trying to trap me, you're trying to trick me sort of thing. Um, when I've done things, I, I've done a, a number of things where, you know, it's a, a order against harassment issue or something that you know you're defending in, in, in for a, a Supreme Court commissioner you know something where it's you know you're there and you didn't really have time to prep and you've got witnesses cold and you're cross-examining somebody um, and and I hear those things all the time you know you're you're trying to trap me you're trying to trick me you know and there are people that that's their natural reaction to make that assumption particularly in in courts right what do we why we see we watch TV and we watch you know the you know, those, those sneaky trial lawyers who get people to they twist their words around and get them to say things they didn't want to say, okay? And there is an assumption out there sometimes. Uh, and sometimes it's just a natural assumption people make because they're just naturally skeptical and cynical and uh, believe people are out to get them. Uh, but, but this is not uncommon that you get the person who, you know, they have to analyze everything beyond uh, uh, the reasonable point. Um, you know, here's the person who's just the jerk. <gasps> Uh, Mr. Barnes, what basis did you have for putting in your company-wide email the accusation that my client, Sarah James, had been convicted of felony bank fraud? <coughs> what? You think she's so innocent? 
Uh, Mr. Barnes, let me repeat my question. When you sent the company-wide email about Sarah James on February 5th, what facts did you have that indicated she'd been convicted of any crime at all? You know, counselor, by the way, when we hear counselor, <laughs> when anyone pulls that one out, you know, you, you know something good is coming. <laughs> something very helpful to you. You know, counselor, people say critical stuff about other people all the time. It's a free country. We all know that. Your client really needs to grow up and get over herself. Why do you think she's so special? Uh, Mr. Barnes, uh, in this deposition, I get to ask the questions and you have to answer them. So let me ask again, did you have any information at all on February 5th that Ms. Barnes had ever been convicted of a crime? She should be convicted of harassment, if that's a crime, for making me come and answer these ridiculous, insulting questions. And so should you. And see, you know, we, we do have people like this that just want to fight you on things. Um, you know, I've been shocked sometimes that third-party witnesses who are so angry at having to be deposed or having to show up for a hearing and actually testify, right? They're not a friend of anybody in the case. <laughs> And they're just so angry about it that they want to take it out on, on you. And of course, this gets us nowhere, right? You're the judge, you're trying to make a decision. This isn't helpful, other than to know who this person is. But if this is a key witness, if this is a key third-party witness, a recipient witness of something that's in dispute between the two parties, and this is the tiebreaker, this is someone who saw or heard or you know, uh, has evidence of something that's really critical, you need to get that information, you need to get that evidence, and this isn't helping. Right? This is just wasting, their, wasting everyone's time. And if it's in front of a jury, you know, now you've just wasted a whole bunch of people's time. And you've frustrated them, and you've left them uh, with, the, you know, uh, with, with the sound belief that, geez, uh, these lawyers and judges don't really know what they're doing, and they just you know, let people run on and on and, and do things like that. So, um, all right, so I had a lot more of the jury. Here's the liar. Uh, anything you ask, answers a lie. Okay? Um, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. I'm going to talk about compulsive, habitual, chronic liars. Um, there is such a thing. Anyone know any? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to ask you who. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, so, so this is kind of interesting. Um, I'm going to talk to you now a little bit about, you know, why we have these different variations of people and what's going on up here and why they're reacting this way. Um, but one thing that's fascinating is that oftentimes in the psychological journals and the research on these different conditions um, and personality disorders and things, uh, oftentimes they investigate um, whether or not those conditions occur more heavily in populations that regularly appear in court. And why? Because they oftentimes, psychological researchers often ha have access to prison populations, okay? And they often use prison populations as a comparator to the, sort of the normal demographic. Um, and they frequently find that these issues, you know, have a very high incidence relative to the general population among people that deal regularly with our legal system. Um, and I can understand that certainly in the criminal context, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, antisocial uh, behavior. Um, but I will tell you, I actually think that, you know, there's oftentimes a reason that people are in court on the civil side as well that has, may have something to do with some of these issues, okay? 
So I think as legal practitioners, um, we're going to see a lot more of this sort of stuff than you would see out in the normal public. If you're working retail, you are probably not going to see as often, as frequently, these type of personality and, and these type of responses um, as you would when you work in the, in the judicial system. You didn't know that when you signed up for this, did you? Didn't realize that you, know, you were going to get to deal with the, uh, the best of the best of gets in the way. So let's talk about causes of witness combativeness or party combativeness or attorney combativeness. By the way, anyone ever see these sorts of behaviors in attorneys? Yeah, can you give us an example without naming names? But um, in a mediation, the attorney in the room was being incredibly combative towards the, uh, the other party and like being really, and, and it was like a, obviously creating a scene and I asked him to step out to talk to him in a second and as soon as I step out, he was a different person. Like, was like really was was a theater inside, and he knew he was being theater. He actually oh, it was a like with some kind of game. So I was, uh, it was my only, I could say overall my experience being very good with Florence. But that was one that was it took me back. How if I was just seeing that person without meeting the one outside, I right. would be like, it was yeah disconcerting to me. And then when we came back, he ended up changing. Okay, I, so it worked at least to get him out of that environment yeah, and but, make but, him recognize, hey, this isn't working. Yeah, yeah. So um, unfortunately, I you know I do think you see uh, some of this uh, among attorneys, um, and part of it, even among attorneys, is kind of standard stress and anxiety, right? And it certainly is among regular parties appearing before you, whether you're doing a mediation or you're you know you're in court. Um, it's a it's a very unnatural environment, right? It's not something we do all the time. Even people who may be you know, frequent flyers with civil cases or with the criminal system, it's still a very unnatural environment. It's one in which uh, you know, the, the decision ultimately appears to be in someone else's hands. You know, you, we're, we're not that kind of animal. We're the kind of animal who wants to control our own destiny, right? We want to we think we're in control or that we can make decisions and take actions that, that make outcomes for us. And unfortunately, when you're in the judicial system, that isn't the case. Right? A judge is making a decision, a jury is making a decision, even in settlement negotiations, in mediation, right? Well, you know what? The other party is going to make the decision in part because they're going to decide what they offer you. You don't get to force them to make a particular offer. And those are very unnatural environments for most people. A lot of stress and anxiety come along with it. And a lot of stress and anxiety do, do, you know, does come along with for, for counsel as well. Um, you know, I think uh, there are some people who are made for this and some people who are not. Um, and, you know, I personally, I've always viewed, I, I always feel like a kid at, you know, the amusement park when I get to go into court. Um, no matter what it's for, you know, you're looking, I, I feel like I'm getting on that big roller coaster ride and it's incredible fun and my hands are in the air and afterwards I want to get right back on, okay? Um, that's just how I feel. It doesn't bother me, it doesn't stress me out. In fact, I really look forward to it. I know there are other people though, in fact, I've worked with lots of them. I've had them as, part, as law partners, I've had them as, you know, associates it really freaks them out. You know, they feel a great deal of pressure. They think this is, you know, a, a, a test. Uh, it's, it's, it's somehow gonna, you know, possibly affect or ruin the rest of their lives if things don't go that well. It's incredibly stressful for them. So there's a lot of that that does come into the, into the mix and can cause some of this. 
We also have coaching, and we've talked about this. By the way, I do believe coaching is different than witness preparation. Witness preparation is just fine. I think it's actually very helpful to have witnesses well prepared, to understand what their role is, and be prepared to be concise in answering you know, direct questions and those sorts of things. Um, coaching is very different and very negative, and we, we've talked about all that. Um, uh, and then there's just general personality variations. Right? These don't fall into the spectrum of mental illness or personality disorders, but we do have people that, you know, they're just kind of naturally more combative, naturally more skeptical, naturally more uh, cynical about things or sarcastic about things. It's just, that's just how they are. You know, anyone who, uh, has, well, any one of you probably, you know, has had a, uh, a sibling or a child or a parent or somebody, you know, where you've been able to compare them against someone who, you know, grew up in the same environment, but is a very different personality. Views the world very differently, reacts to the world very differently. There's a lot of variations in people, and some of those variations come out in, in somewhat negative ways. And then there's the psychological, mental illness, personality disorder issues that I want to talk about very briefly. Um, things like antisocial personality disorder, okay? Um, now, this is a natural tendency to lie. Now, I tell attorneys, and this slide is for attorneys, that, to be honest with you, you can't use that tendency against them. Because people who have this sort of disorder, you know what? Their just natural tendency is to try and tell a story and to lie and misrepresent things. And frankly, if it's someone on the other side, great. You know, if it's someone that my opponent is trying to use against my client to tell a different story and they're going to fabricate things and it's going to be obvious, wonderful. I want to actually encourage them to do that sometimes. Because that means that the trier of fact is going to see that my opponent's story rests on a lie. Okay? Um, however, you know, you got to be careful with this uh, because um, it can also fool you. I mean, some people with these personality disorders are very good at what they do. Um, and you have to spend some time with them. You have to be very careful and listen very carefully to what they're saying to see where the disparities are and the differences are that point out the fact that they, they're tending to misrepresent things. Um, narcissistic personality disorder. Now this is one that I think offers some real opportunity if you handle it correctly. You know, the narcissistic personality disorder individual is someone who basically uh, sees themselves as on a higher plane than the rest of us, right? They are endowed with special skills, attributes, and they are entitled to special treatment. And they are very upset when they're not given that special treatment. However, they also can be very ingratiated when they receive the type of respect and gratitude that they think that they deserve, okay? Um, and Basically, I believe that with an individual like this, if you can spot it, particularly in, sort of, say, a mediation context, or any other time where you are trying to get to an outcome with that person, you can use that sort of personality disorder to help you, to help you accomplish the goals. You know, think about this. Um, I may actually have some of these on the slides, some, some examples. Well, this is a, this is a slightly <coughs> different disorder, but... Um, histrionic personality disorder is actually very, very similar. Uh, this is the person who, who everything has to be at the height of emotion and drama. Okay, you know everything is a crisis. Everything is important. Uh, they want to be the center of attention, the center of you know the of the storm. Uh, they want to see themselves there. Not not super variant necessarily from the uh, the the. Um, 
narcissistic personality disorder, but these are some examples of things that you could do with someone with that sort of uh, issue. Uh, Mr. Jones, I want to ask you about events at the office party on the 15th, because I think you were the one whose presence really stood out to everyone there. Mrs. Johnson, you would agree that everyone was looking at you to make the important decisions about whether to continue that contract or not. Um, you know, in mediation, Mr. Smith, uh, it sounds like the person that we really have to count on here to be creative is you, because you bring more skills in that area than probably anyone else. Um, now, folks who are wired this way, that can be very helpful, very powerful, and send them in a very positive direction, okay, a very helpful direction. Um, now, anyone have a problem with using that to your advantage? Um, with making those sort of statements to somebody? I mean, do you feel that you're being, you know, you're lying to somebody, you're manipulating, manipulating them, you're taking advantage of them? All right. I get different answers on that sometimes. Um, you know, you all feel comfortable manipulating anybody, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I, I think these are very legitimate. I think they're very legitimate tools to use with people. I think that to, to be able to, to, to define uh, what the motivating factors are for somebody is critical in the things that we do uh, in the justice system. I think it's very, very important. And we have limited time, limited resources. We've got to get things going, moving. We've got to get things accomplished. Um, and in order to do that, you know, sometimes you've got to push these sort of buttons. And they can be very effective with people. And there's nothing, again, I don't find anything unethical, manipulative, or wrong. I will tell you this, though. You've got to be genuine in doing it. You know, just pandering to somebody, just sucking up to somebody in a disingenuous way. It's not sincere. You know, you're not really finding something about them that, you know, really is helpful, that really is, you know, potentially positive, that you can, you can stroke. Um, it, it doesn't work, in my opinion. I think people see through that pretty easily, you know. They, they think it's disingenuous and you may actually lose credibility. But I don't think it's difficult to find something positive in just about anybody. I take that back. I've, I've had a few people in mediations where I don't know if I could find anything positive and they basically, you know, attacked me uh, personally. Um, by the way, you know, there is no person on the face of the earth who has less power than a judge pro tem handling a mediation, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, you know, um, man, I, I, have, I have had many negative, very negative experiences with both pro pers and with people represented who you know, just literally think that because you're delivering a message from the other side and an offer that they don't like, that you know, you're, you're the enemy, okay? But even then, sometimes you can find, you can find things in them, uh, and I always look for that. I always look for that actually with the other side, too. If I'm in a mediation, for example, I, I try and figure out from the other side, well, what do you think about this person and, and what makes them tick? And oftentimes, it's a long list of very negative things, right? Oh, they're selfish, and they're angry, and they're greedy, and they're nasty, and they ruin everyone's lives. Okay, all right, I get that. I understand that part. But what makes them tick? You know, what motivates them to do things? Is it just money? Is it, though, is it a feeling of power? Is it a feeling of control? Is it a feeling that they're being listened to? Uh, that they're not being neglected? They're not being left out? That they're being, you know, I, anyone here ever had to mediate the you know, breakup of a small business? Um, yeah, man, those are horrible. I, I, I find those to be, yeah, I think that's worse than me in a divorce. 
settlement oftentimes. And unfortunately, our laws don't really, if it's like an LLC, they don't really provide an exit strategy for those things legally that's very good for anybody. And so, you know, oftentimes you've got people who, you know, they're really, really angry with each other. Um, and and it's, they're very difficult to, you know, to, to unwind those sorts of things. But oftentimes you can find, even in those issues, we've got some people who are very combative with one another and possibly combative with you, that, you know, at the bottom, at the bottom of all this is, you know, Parker Jones feels like they were the, you know, genesis of the idea for this great business and they were never given enough, uh, enough respect for that. Parker Smith over here believes that even though they may not have been the idea person, they were the workhorse and they put all the effort in and they did the sweat equity and that needs to be rewarded for them, okay? And you know what? You could probably recognize both of those things, right? You could find a way yourself to recognize both of those things in them and overcome even people who are suffering from something that, you know, is a true personality disorder in that, in that regard. Compulsive individual chronic or pathological liar. Um, I find these people fascinating. The, the, uh, there's not uh, technically, as I understand it, there's not technically an actual um, psychological diagnosis per se for this, although it is recognized um, in psychological research as a true condition. Uh, it's, it's called different things. That's why it's, you know, I've got a couple different terms up there, compulsive lying, habitual lying, chronic lying, pathological lying. It's all the same thing. Here's what basically is the hallmark of this. This is the person who lies when there is no good reason to do so. There's nothing to their benefit to lying. In fact, they lie even when it's to their detriment. And I have come across these people time and time and time again in my practice, where literally it doesn't matter what question you ask them, they are compelled, literally compelled to misrepresent things, to exaggerate, right? Or to fight a clear fact, you know, something that you put in front of them in black and white, even when the lie is worse for them than the truth would be. It makes no sense, um, but it's a compulsive reaction to things. Now, you know, where do we find these people in society? Okay, Congress. Is that is that? I, I heard politics. Politics. Okay. Yeah. Overuse of drugs somewhere along in their lifestyle. Okay. Okay. Somebody who may have addiction problems and things also to complement that that issue. Yes. Okay. All right. We ever find them in judges? No. No. <laughs> what do you think? Only in California. <laughs> Did you read my materials? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. There's a great case in California I've included in your materials of a judge who was sanctioned and ultimately uh, lost uh, his, his judicial position. Um, and the California Commission, I'm not sure the exact name of it, but the California Commission on Judicial Conduct um, wrote a report after a hearing. Uh, it was appealed and, and the judge sought to you know, keep his position. And they wrote an opinion and they specifically quoted from, uh, they had psychologists uh, testifying uh, about this judge's particular issues. And they give a great description in there of what a pathological compulsive liar is and of their conclusion that this judge fit the bill. And basically, you know, there was no fixing it. This is not something that they had great hope that could be, could be fixed. This is actually a judge who made um, very specific uh, claims about his military service record, 
um, not just regular military service, right? But, you know, he was heroic in these things. And he had won all kinds of awards and things. All this was untrue. Um, but this is what he did. And, and those weren't the only time, type of exaggerations or, or claims that, that the judge had made. But they all padded his resume to get him appointed, right, to the bench. And the facts show that even at his robing ceremony, his being sworn in, he had people speak about him feeding them all kinds of false information about his background to make him sound greater and more glorious than he was. He went that far. And of course there were other examples and there were complaints about his behavior you know, on the bench and all that sort of thing. But the reality is that you know, there are people out there in society that are in very responsible, very high level positions that are very successful you know, in our kind of objective view of the world, but they're compulsive liars. Right? It does exist. Um, and they're very, very difficult to deal with because literally it is a compulsion. Um, now, you would think, well, if it's a compulsion, then gee, can I, can I use my legal jujitsu on them and just turn that against them, right? And so the questions I ask them are all false, and then I can finally get them to admit the truth because they're just going to react you know, in the opposite way. Um, I don't think it works that way exactly. Um, I, I think they are committed to you know, a false narrative. They know what the truth is, but they're committed to a false narrative just compulsively, and that's pretty much all you're, you're going to get out of them. They're very, I think they're very, very difficult. This is a very, very difficult personality disorder um, to deal with. And frankly, um, does anyone here have uh, any sort of technique that they might use uh, with somebody like that? Yeah? I think it depends on where you're using them, you might be able to gain some sort of strategic advantage, um, you know, litigation-wise, if, if depending on what, but I think a person like that ends up becoming pretty useless in, in a discovery sort of mode because they don't offer any good information. And so if you're trying to get to the, the facts of a matter, uh, whether that person's on the stand and, and you know, trying to, you're trying to move a trial along or you're just trying to get information from a deposition because you're just trying to find out about your case, they're not very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I pass them by. Well, it depends on whether their lies are consistent. Because if the, the lie changes, then and if, you can figure, if you have enough time to figure out that the same question gets a different answer, and you can use that to expose them as somebody who's not reliable. If their lies are consistent, then, you sh then there may be opportunity to simply ask some questions off where their answer is obviously going to be a lie and, and again, try to expose that right. they're not reliable. Right. And so what, what you all heard, yeah? Well, if the lie only has to convince maybe one person on a jury, then maybe they're not lying. For example, I talked to someone who's a juror, questioning that inspection, not in the state, whether the person had been convicted three times. And they had a picture of his <coughs> He wore the same ugly shirt to the trial, and the jurors <laughs> believed it was the same guy who was second mugshot, the second conviction. It was the same fellow. He only had to convince one person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, and, and, and it, that does make it difficult and it makes it important actually as a practitioner that you expose that, right? First of all, it makes it important as a practitioner that you never take on this sort of person as a client, right? That, that's number one. Um, you see this sort of thing coming, you just run away. Uh, 
But if you're, you know, if you're doing that, then you're going to end up on the other side of them. And it's very important that, that you do expose it, uh, I think. Um, and, and I actually think it's, fairly, it's usually fairly easy to expose because there's almost no situation where you're not going to have at least you know, one other credible witness who's going to contradict them or a document that you know, they're going to contradict just blatantly like the photograph. Now, granted, you know what? Jurors do weird things, um, and maybe they don't see that, but I tend to play the law of averages. You know, I think most times you're going to be able to find something where you can expose that uh, directly, and I think it's actually fairly powerful. It's fairly easy to expose people like that, um, and uh, I, I really kind of enjoy it when they're on the other side of things. I do find this, though, to be very, very difficult to deal with if I'm in a mediation mode, you know, if I'm trying to broker a deal with people, um, because you've got somebody that just does, will not see reality, and you can't have a discussion with them, really. I mean, you, your discussions are circular, because if you try and actually raise a factual point that someone should consider, or, for that matter, even a prediction of future outcomes and things, you know, they just want to give you the opposite. Um, and I, I find them very, very difficult to, to, to deal with in that setting. So I would tend, if I saw that in a mediation setting, for example, I would tend to, to say, hey, I'm going to give up on you know, trying to have the logical conversation with this person, right? The, the thing that tries to convince them through some sort of logical appeal that you know, your best course of action is to do X. Um, it's going to be very difficult to get them to accept that sort of, sort of thing. Now, I do believe that people like that oftentimes will, um, I, I, this again, look, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, I don't pretend to be, uh, I'm just making predictions based upon anecdotal evidence I have. I do think people like this tend to be fairly um, emotionally reactionary, and I think if you can tap into that, you know, if you can tap into their emotions, right, and you get them to, to react and make decisions based upon a pure kind of instinctual emotional reaction, you can get somewhere with them. Um, but the logical road is probably not uh, not very helpful. Okay, so here's my uh, my techniques for overcoming combativeness, and I, I kind of got my things broken down into two things. One is overcoming, and one is uh, actually avoiding combativeness. Okay, so this is actually avoiding combativeness. This is how do you how do you prevent someone from ever getting to that point? So number one, and I know this sounds simple. This is what your you know your parents told you when you were two years old, and your kindergarten teacher told you, and you know everyone else has told you the rest of your life. Um, uh, be nice, be engaging, be friendly, cooperative, conversational. And we're going to talk about how you can actually use that. And it's actually, this is a this is not just a you know simple how do you get along with people. This is actually uh, rooted in in uh, what are now some uh, very very heavily studied and uh, field tested and implemented law enforcement techniques um, that I'm going to talk about, but, um, you know, engage, engage people, right? Um, now, you know, I commonly tell folks, you know, when I teach trial advocacy at ASU, I start my class every year, um, we're in a mock courtroom, okay? So I take all the students, I call them kids, take all the kids outside, um, and I tell them, all right, so from this point on, you're in a courtroom, right? For the rest of the semester, you're going to act like you're in a courtroom. And when you're in a courtroom, there are certain ways you behave, and you're going to learn how to behave. And we're going to do this in very, 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 very simple terms. You know, first thing you do, turn off your phones, please. Everyone turn your phones completely off and put them away. Now, come into the courtroom. You know, here's where everyone sits. You need to understand where everyone's going to be. And here's how you introduce yourself to the judge. 
Okay, the case is going to be called. They're going to ask counsel to announce their appearances. And here's what you're going to do. And I make them do it. First day, you know, I go through that. Everyone's got to stand up and they've got to announce who they are and who they're representing. But I tell them one thing, and, and it may sound silly, but I'm going to tell you why I tell them this. I tell them the first thing you're going to do is you're going to stand up and you're going to smile. First thing is a smile. Not a fake smile, not some big goofy, you know, goofy grin, but just a good morning and you're going to open your mouth and speak with a smile on your lips. And you're going to be friendly about it. And you're happy to be there. Now, I've got a theory. And I tell people that I am a one-man human experiment, social experiment, okay? Um, and not always purposefully. I'm constantly, though, experimenting on myself. Um, and I'm constantly doing things and seeing people's reactions to stuff and then thinking about, why, are people, why, why, are they, why do people react that way to me? And then I try and, you know, I try and change the dynamics, the variables, the next time around and see how they react and see if it's different. But I conducted accidentally an experiment on myself many years ago when I was in the Attorney General's office. I had braces as an adult, okay? And I didn't have like those cool Invisalign, you know, where you can't see them or anything. I had like the good old school big metal braces and I had them for six and a half years, okay? And my, my bite was bad and everything was bad and, you know, they kept them on forever. And I'm a runner and I used to run at lunch at the AG's office and if I couldn't find someone else to run with, um, our normal route wasn't very safe if you weren't in a group, uh, given where we were. So I would instead run downtown. I'd run right down here, okay? And I would be running by myself and it's lunchtime, lots of people out walking around and I would notice that as soon as I would catch someone's eye when I was running toward them, they'd break into a smile. And it was happening all the time. And I thought, man, this is really, boy, Phoenicians have become much friendlier than I remember them, right? And I started thinking about it a little bit. And I started thinking, well, why, why are they doing this to me? And then I started thinking about myself. And I realized, you know, when I ran with those big braces and I'm trying to breathe, I pulled my lips back like into this big giant smile. Not on purpose, just to get some air in my lungs. But what people were seeing is this goofy guy running at him with this big smile on his face, and they couldn't help it. Everyone looked at me, suddenly like burst into a smile. And I thought, wow, that's like a superpower, right? I could take anybody and turn them into a happy person just by my, my smile. And so I started actually doing it on purpose and experimenting with it. You know, I go to airports, you know, you're walking through the airport, I dropped my daughter off at the airport this morning and I'm walking through and people are in lines and they're upset and I gotta go through the TSA and everything. But I'll tell you what, if you walk through that airport with a big smile on your face, smile at people as you go by, I'm telling you, most of those people are gonna turn and look at you and go, and they're gonna give you that back. It's amazing, it's, it's weird. So I tell people now, you know, when you go into court, do you, do you want the judge to help you or not? Do you want the judge to like you or not? Do you want the judge to like your client or not? Well, guess what? You know, is the judge going to like you more or less if you're the person that brings a smile to their face? Okay? If you're the person that seems friendly and open and happy to be there. Now, I don't think I've ever won a single argument because I smiled at the judge. Okay? But I don't think it hurts. Um, and and I, I tell people, look, this brief engagement, even a brief engagement with somebody, 
um, that's a positive engagement, you know, especially when they're in a highly stress-filled environment. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what to expect next. You know, they're really, they're really concerned about this. Um, you know, it, it actually can relieve an incredible amount of that natural negative reaction, that fight or flight mechanism that we have always burning in the back of our heads. So when I start a mediation, for example, I try and go in, you know, smile on my face, shake everyone's hands. I'm self-deprecating about it. I always tell them, you know, I'm a judge pro tem. Basically what that means to you is I'm a substitute teacher for the judge, okay? That's what I am. Um, but, you know, I'm here to try and help you out. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and, you know, let you talk. And I'm going to try and hear you out. I'm going to try to understand what's going on. And I try and get them to speak a little bit, to tell me a little bit about themselves, to try and establish a little bit of rapport, okay? And something that's, that's positive. Um, I always tell people, though, that, you know, you got to start that way because you can't ever get back to this point, right? If you start negative, if you start sour and serious and dour, right, what happens then when you try and all of a sudden turn that around on somebody and suddenly become smiling and jovial and happy, right? What do people see that as? It's fake, right? I think most people just view that as, it's jarring. It's like, wait a minute, you were just attacking me. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you were attacking me a minute ago. You, you looked like you, you really didn't like me a second ago. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're not, now some people think, well, well, wait a minute, you know, that's that, again, that's that legal jujitsu. They, they don't know where I'm coming from. And all of a sudden, you know, I, create, I raised the tension in the room and now I lowered it. And I don't think it works that way. I think once you raise the tension in the room, that tension is staying up. I don't think you get to bring it back down in huge degrees. So you try and start it down here. Keep the temperature down here as long as you possibly can. And you may need to get negative, right? You may need to get more forceful and more, uh, more strident. And sometimes you may need to raise your voice. Or I've seen judges get particularly upset with witnesses or counsel and come up off the bench and lean over the bench and you know, point fingers and, 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 and things like that. And you may need to get there, but you don't start there. You know, if you start there, I think you, you trigger a lot of, of negative things in people's personalities and their natural subconscious uh, uh, minds that can be very, very um, uh, counterproductive. So um, I also uh, tell folks that you, know, you need to explain what the rules are and what their expectations are because again, with most people, even with attorneys, you know, you'd be surprised, right? I, I, well, maybe you wouldn't be surprised because you've all been there. Um, you know, I'm in front of all kinds of different judges and it used to be that you knew the judges, you know, Maricopa County, when I first started practicing anyway, you know, you, 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 either you knew them or someone you worked with knew them, right? And you can kind of get a feel for, well, what is this judge like and not like and, and, and all that. Nowadays, I, I get assigned to judges all the time I've never heard of before. You know, I've never met them, right? It's probably on this case. Uh, so I don't know much about them. And all judges are different, you know? They are. They, they handle things differently. Different things upset them. Different things make them happy. Different things, you know, uh, or some of them, you know, have particular feelings about juries and how juries should be treated, uh, other ones don't. Um, you know, even I, though, need then some guidance. Uh, I need to understand. I need to know what the rules are going to be, what rules we're playing by. That makes it easier for me. I can be much more relaxed and free and flowing. And I think when we're dealing with people who don't know what's going on, especially, right, parties who don't really know what to expect, to tell them up front what the rules are, what you expect them to do, what their role is in whatever you're doing, 
and do it very respectfully, okay? And explain to them, look, I'm gonna try and make sure I don't talk over you. I wanna make sure I listen to everything you have to say, even though we all know that if you really let a person just open up and unload on you, you know, you're gonna be there forever, and, and we're not actually gonna probably do that. We're gonna control the conversation, but I want them to understand that you do have a role here, right? This isn't just us throwing everything at you. You're not the victim. You're not the helpless person. You are in control. I always tell my witnesses when I prepare them, by the way, when I prepare a witness for, a, a, for testimony, I tell them one thing right up front, and that is, you've got to remember something, and you've got to try and believe this. You've got to commit this to yourself, that you are in control. You're not going to feel that way. Right? You're either going to be in a deposition or you're going to be up on a stand somewhere in a courtroom and you're going to be thinking, why in the, how did I get myself here? Right? And why am I here? And why are these people asking me questions about things I don't want to talk about you know, and that upset me and, and last place in the world I want to be? And by the way, I don't get to get up and walk out when I want to. You know, I got to just sit there and I got to take the questions. And if I don't do it right, some judge that I don't know is going to tell me that you know, I need to do it over again. And this is painful. Um, but I always tell them, look, you're, you're in control. And you need to think of it that way. Because guess what? You get to decide what the answers are. No one gets to tell you what your answers are. You get to, you're fully in control of what your answers are. Um, number two, you get to decide when and how you answer the question. If you need to think about it, you think about it, right? If you really need to, to have some time to process, if you don't understand, you can say, I don't understand. I need help. I need clarification, right? You're in control. And I know it's hard for people to process that sometimes, but I think it's important to let people know that, that they do have control. Um, they do have a role in it. They're important to the process. And I think that, again, it helps keep the temperature in the room, you know, down here. Um, oh, I had, I had a tip at the end of there that, you know, when you, when you do um, tell people, for example, that you're, you're gonna, you know, they're gonna have to answer yes or no. And I find this in mediation all the time if I'm actually, if I, if I let a party open up about something, which oftentimes they want to do, right? They want to tell me why they've been wrong, and why they're, they're not at fault, or why the other person is you know, the most horrible person in the world. Um, if I just let them go, I could be there all day. And I may need to get very, very specific answers. But I try and let them under, you know, understand the reason why I'm doing that. Look, I may, I may just ask you yes or no questions. You need, you need to understand I'm not trying to avoid you telling me everything you think is important, and I certainly encourage you to tell me what you think is important. But to get to the basic facts, you know, oftentimes really specific facts are really important to us getting some progress made here, and I may need to say, I just need a yes or no answer to this, okay? Um, and most people will agree with you then. They will say, okay. And then when they start to go off track, I go, I'm sorry, this is one of those times when I just need to get a yes or no answer from you. All right. Um, so you've, you've now uh, de-stressed by explaining things. Um, again, I, I talked to already about the um, I, I don't recall, I don't know, I've already gone through all of that. Um, now, overcoming combativeness. So that, those are my, my basic tips for sort of how do we keep the temperature in the room now down? How do we keep people from you know, ratcheting things up, becoming combative, becoming um, unhelpful? Uh, this is, you know, how do we overcome it once it happens, right? Because it doesn't matter sometimes how hard you try and all the techniques you use. There are some people that are just going to get there, and some of them faster than others, okay? So, again, I've explained some of the things that I use um, to, to try and control people's responses to things. And, again, this is that serial explainer example I gave you where I say, you know, if someone says, you know, well, I have to explain this. I can't answer this yes or no. And I go back to them and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What I really meant to ask was, and I just repeat my same question. 
And again, the reason I do that is sometimes, sometimes people see it. You know, they go, oh, guys, I'm really stupid. That was the question, and I didn't answer it. I'd say about half the time, I actually get the answer I want then, right away. And the rest of the time, they just look like the liar that they are uh, if they continue to, to refuse that, okay? Um, all right. So th this is another example of, of using a witness's personality against them. And, and I actually think, you know, how many of you if, you, if you sit as judges, you actually ask witnesses questions? Yeah. Um, by the way, as counsel, I appreciate that. You know, I know some attorneys freak out over that because they think, well, that's all that matters now, right? Whatever the judge asks, that's the only thing that matters. And, and you know, um, it, 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 it bothers them that, you know, it sounds like that judge is not actually listening to what we're trying to get this witness to say. And they're just focusing on these few things. I really enjoy that. I, I really appreciate it because it does let me know what you're thinking, you know. I love judges who, if I come in for an oral argument, tell me, hey, I've read the materials and I want you to talk about these couple things. You can talk about other things if you want, that's fine, but understand, these are the things that I want to know about, right? Man, great relief to me. And by the way, oh, I just, want, I just have to say this to brag about myself. Uh, I've been practicing for 29 years and I promised myself for years and years and years that I would someday walk in on an oral argument and be brave enough to say, when I asked Mr. Richards your argument, I would say, Your Honor, I've got nothing to add. I finally did it. <laughs> I, I actually did this past year, I think it was in February maybe, uh, I had an oral argument and I read the materials and I thought, what else could I say? You know, they were really good and they were really clear. And the judge said, you know, Mr. Richards, your argument? And I said, Your Honor, I've got nothing to add. Well, thank you, Mr. Richards. And I did win that one. So I guess that convinced me that I probably should have been doing that all along. Because <laughs> I've also had judges in the past, by the way, just so you don't think I, you know, I take myself too seriously. I remember one judge one time who, who uh, admonished us, as many judges do, you know, look, counsel, I've read all the materials, you know, you don't need to repeat everything to me, but if you, if you have important points you want me to think about, give them to me. I gave my argument, you know, and I gave it my heart and soul, and it was a complex issue, and you know, I was up there for 30 minutes or what have you, and I finished, and I said, Your Honor, unless you have any questions, that's, you know, that's all I have. And she looked at me and said, thank you. You did an amazing job of just repeating everything I'd already read. <laughs> and even then, it took me like 10 more years to walk in and say I have nothing to add, okay? Um, I, I apologize for the little tangent. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, again, with, with a rude witness, I think that the answer is, I, I've given you an example up here, but I, I think that the, the, the real key with a rude witness is, is to use it against them, um, you know, to basically just be the opposite. It's the old, you know, they go low, they go low, I go high. Um, it's, it's literally, you know, every time you get that nasty answer back, it's never to get <coughs> snarky or sarcastic or anything. Because I think the juxtaposition of those two things is what's really important. I think that's what's powerful. I think the message that, you know, people are often afraid that, well, gee, someone, you know, gives me the, uh, the, the, the really low, cheap shot, and boy, if I don't fire back somehow, I look weak, right? I look like, you know, I just got taken advantage of. Um, and maybe that's just a male thing, I, uh, you know, I confess. I grew up with all boys in my family, and, you know, we had a lot of really bad habits because of that, and most of our resolution was done through you know, hitting each other, hitting each other over the head with something. 
if we ever had a problem. So, um, but, but you know, that's kind of my natural assumption. And that's a lot of people's natural assumptions. Look, if someone's being nasty, you, you kind of got to give them, you know, give as good as you get. Um, but I think the juxtaposition, especially in the role we have, where you show yourself as, you know, no, no, I'm up here, you know. You keep going down there. I'm sorry. I'm just, I just want to get this information. This is all I need right here. Um, I think that's really, I think it's very, very powerful. And I think it also is a controlling mechanism because again, unless someone is really out there on the edge with one of those personality disorders, at some point in time, a lot of times people will finally go, yeah, I'm looking stupid here, right? I am, I am looking like an ass. I need to get back in line a little bit. Come, come back a, a little bit towards center. Uh, I do think that that, I do think that that works and helps. Um, you know, my, this is probably my last tip on overcoming the bad is that it's, it's a tip of what not to do. It's never engage, right? Never engage. Never. Um, it's, it's the old saying, one of my favorite sayings that I teach young lawyers all the time is uh, that old saying that you never wrestle with a pig. Um, you know, uh, you both get dirty and the pig enjoys it. Okay? Um, that's what happens, right? With people who want to be combative and nasty and they, they just get worse, is what really happens. And think about it, there's a psychological reason for that. You know, when you assume a defensive posture towards somebody, you just breed suspicion, right? The person is always skeptical and thinks you're out to get them and thinks what you're there for is really to try and screw them somehow. They think that even more, okay? Um, arguing with somebody actually turns on the worst of our natural instincts, right? That's an attack. Um, you know, think about how that's viewed. You know, I, I, I like to point this out. There's um, there's a study, it's not in your materials, um, I could certainly I could get you a cite to it, but I found this uh, a couple months back, I thought it was really fascinating, that um, some researchers uh, did an experiment on um, human, the human need for social acceptance and social interaction, okay? And uh, the hypothesis was, of course, that you know, as human beings, we have this incredible drive towards social acceptance. Right? We need to believe that we are accepted and valued by the group. No matter who the group is, it doesn't have to be anyone close to us. And the hypothesis in this case was it could be complete strangers. And they also wanted to see what was happening in the brain when, when people were, um, were faced with uh, social rejection. And so they took the people being experimented on and they put them in a, uh, a brain scan machine okay? so they could actively monitor uh, where activity was occurring in the brain. And then they sent two of the um, researchers into the room, and they had a ball with them. And they started to play a game of catch. And they invited the person sitting in the brain scan machine to join the game. And they were simply in a little triangle, throwing the ball around to each other, and they threw it around for a while. And then suddenly, the testers had been trained to cut the person in the brain scan out of the game. Not saying anything to them, right? Just stop tossing the ball to them as frequently, and then stop tossing the ball to them at all, and just toss it to one another for a while. With no explanation of why, okay? Now, the findings, as I understand it, at least the way these researchers analyzed it, were that, number one, that was uh, you know, an incredibly powerful um, example of social rejection. It sounds ridiculous, right? Some strangers walk into a room and we're playing a game of catch with a ball and then they stop throwing the ball to me and now all of a sudden I, I care about that? But what they found was that the test subjects cared a great deal about that. It was incredibly distressful to them. What was more surprising is what they found in their brains is the portions of the systems in their brains that lit up with the most activity 
when they experience rejection were the, the pain sensor systems, the physical pain sensor systems in the brain. And the hypothesis was that our brains are wired in such a way that we actually experience human social rejection as physical pain. It is that danger. We, our brain interprets it as that dangerous to us. You know, no different than the lion leaping from the bush to you know, take us down and kill us if other people don't like us enough to throw a ball to us. Okay? Uh, I think that's fascinating. Um, I'm excited to see what, you know, what comes of that sort of research in the, in the future. But what it tells you is, you know, when someone thinks you're not on their team, right, their natural reaction could be incredibly strong against you. Um, no reason to get there. I'm going uh, to talk about one last thing that I think is fascinating. And hopefully, if you don't mind, I may go over by about five minutes. Is that going to be? You can get up and walk out on me. Because I think we're going until 3.30, right? Um, this is something I've just started incorporating and I'm going to start doing more on, but I think it's fascinating. Anyone here uh, aware of the FBI stairway behavior change model? No. Okay. The reason I came across this is because I do some um, civil rights work, uh, excessive force work, um, and uh, this um, is an issue that is a huge live issue right now, but you'd be shocked. These are not new concepts. Back in, uh, and I'm going to give you a, a, a suggestion, by the way, if you want to read or know more about this. There's a guy out there, his name is Chris Voss, V-O-S-S. -S. Chris Voss was, at one time, uh, he was the um, lead uh, FBI terrorism and international kidnapping negotiator, okay? I think he was in that position for about 10 years. And he now is a private consultant, um, and he goes around the country teaching the FBI stairway behavior change model to folks in all kinds of industries outside of law enforcement as an idea and a concept that can be used in all kinds of other places. And I think he's right. He's also highly entertaining. He's got great stories, you know. I mean, think about this guy. He's like doing international hostage negotiation, you know, around the world. I mean, he's, he's highly entertaining. He's got a bunch of YouTube videos out there that you can watch. And he's got some, some really interesting books, and they're very easy reads as well. But what happened was in about, at least according to him, in the early 1970s, there was a spate of um, airplane hijackings. And there was one in particular that happened on, uh, at a Florida airport. And a commercial airliner was hijacked, and it was landed uh, at that airport, and the FBI responded to it. And what they decided to do, which was not uncommon in the day, was they thought, okay, we've got a hijacker here. He seems very agitated, very dangerous. He's got a weapon. We're going to storm the plane. And they did. And it didn't go well. Um, the hijacker ended up killing, uh, for some reason, I, I, I'm assuming that he had found his way on this particular flight uh, intentionally because his ex-wife was on the plane. And he killed the ex-wife, and he killed the pilot, and he killed himself. Now, the story doesn't end there because this is America, and there was a lawsuit, right? There's a civil lawsuit brought out of that where law enforcement was sued, and the theory was that you didn't have to storm the plane. It was actually brought by the daughter uh, of, the, of the hijacker whose mother had been killed. Um, and the theory was you didn't have to storm the plane. There were other alternatives that you could have used. There were de-escalation options that you could have used, and you could have waited them out, and you could have negotiated them out of it, and no one would have been hurt. Okay? And ultimately, that case went up, uh, I guess, well, for some reason, I think it's the Fifth Circuit, although Florida would be the Eleventh Circuit. But in any event, I think it's a Fifth Circuit decision came down and said, yes, there's a clearly established standard 
for law enforcement that they should consider less than lethal options in negotiation before they storm the plane, okay? With that, again, according to Mr. Boss, the FBI decided, gee, we may be doing things the wrong way, we may be exposing ourselves to liability, and maybe we're just not doing what we should. Let's try something different. And they developed over time through significant research and then field experimentation what they call the FBI Stairway Behavior Change Model. Now, I will tell you, uh, this is something that has been rolled out nationwide. Um, it is in standard law enforcement training here in Arizona. Uh, at least variations of this are. Um, I've seen it. Some of them are relevant to case I have. Um, and yet, uh, the, the real dilemma now is, is and I think that and the, the heavy criticism of law enforcement now is, is that despite the fact that we have these models and these techniques out there, there's also separate training of law enforcement that contradicts it. And when law enforcement officers <coughs> follow only one side of the model and they don't follow the escalation side, oftentimes bad things happen, okay? Um, and that was the finding of a major Department of Justice study that came out in 2007 um, that reemphasized that you know this, these models and these techniques that have been out there now for so long and have proven themselves very effective in the field at de-escalating combative situations, dangerous situations, you know, need to be regularly and aggressively employed. Um, and, and they are in many places. I mean, there are many, many wonderful uh, examples of this where uh, they've done amazing things to you know, de-escalate situations and, and uh, end very, very, very uh, dangerous um, situations with, uh, uh, with very dangerous people. But um, what I tell people is, you know, and I think this is kind of the Chris Voss method is, look, if you got a combative person, go ahead and treat them like the terrorist or kidnapper you think they are, okay? I mean, if that's how you want to think of them, if you want to think of them as being very, very, very negative and they've got something that they're holding hostage, right? They're holding your settlement hostage or they're holding your case hostage or you know, they're holding a resolution of the facts hostage somehow. But go ahead and think of them that way. That's fine. But if you're going to think of them that way, then consider applying this sort of uh, approach. And here's how it works, okay? It's five steps. And they're not easy necessarily to implement. You've got to be uh, experienced with it. You've got to know what you're doing. But the first is active listening. And this is that engagement piece that I talked to you about earlier. Active listening actually lets someone know that you are, in fact, listening to them. You're not there to lecture, control, demand. You are there, at first, to listen. Okay? You're to hear them. You're to understand. Even when they're not speaking coherently, right? Even when they are crazed and off the rails and angry and insulting and being disrespectful and nasty, the first step is that engagement and let them understand through active listening. Next is developing empathy for the person in their position. Now, do I mean literally, you know, you're suddenly developing, as I put it here, sympathy for the devil, that you're suddenly trying to understand and feel, you know, uh, in league with them and, and believe that they have a logical, rational position. No, that's not what you're doing. But you are trying to understand where they're coming from and what is motivating them at its core. And you're trying to understand that genuinely. So instead of, you know, the Bill Richards natural reaction saying, this person's a jerk. You know, I don't like this person. You know, they're nasty. They're mean. They're horrible. They, they, just, they belong in prison. Whatever I may, I may think about them, it's actually trying to figure out, okay, put all that aside. Maybe that's all true. But let's figure out and let's have some empathy for what is driving this person, okay? And you use the active listening to get there and you use active conversation and dialogue with the person to try and understand it. So you experiment with them. You know what I hear you saying, Mr. Jones? It sounds like what you're really concerned about is X. 
You know, have I got that right? Am I saying that correctly? You know, would you would you put it differently? Um, and if that's not right, you know, they'll give you more clues. And they'll give you more context. And you say, okay, so it sounds like the most important thing to you right now is why, right? Are we, you know, are we getting closer to it? Am I understanding? You know, I really want to understand what's going on with you. And then showing empathy for them. And establishing rapport is the third step. And that's actually um, not, uh, it's actually conveying the empathy that you have for them, the understanding that you have for them, and helping to develop a mutual sense of trust. Um, and again, it sounds like, gee, how, how, that must be really hard. How do you develop a sense of trust to somebody who's just insulting you and calling you, you know, telling you that you're evil and you're out to get them and you're terrible? Um, it's not easy. It does require dialogue. The theory is, though, and I think that this has been borne out in, in the use of these techniques, is that you know, once you go far enough with a lot of people and you show that, hey, you know, I am listening. I am understanding. I am, you know, maybe, I'm not saying I agree with you. Okay? I'm not saying you're right, you're correct. But I am showing you that I understand where you're coming from. I get it, okay? Uh, I know it's important to you. That I can actually establish a sense of trust, a mutual trust there, a mutual respect. Um, doesn't mean I've completely brought the temperature all the way down, but it means that now they've let me in. And that's actually where you need to be. Chris Voss describes negotiating with a hostage taker or a terrorist um, as basically uh, having a conversation um, with a schizophrenic. And it's basically the conversation is completely lost because there are voices in the heads of the two people who are trying to converse that are overwhelming whatever the message is. Okay? So when I'm trying to send a message to you about what you should be thinking about here in this settlement, what, you know, what factors you should consider, what options you should consider. Well, you've got voices in your head that are telling you other things. And they're not listening at all to what I'm saying. They're saying to you instead, no, no, don't listen to this person. They're not to be trusted. They're evil. They don't like us. You know, they're, they're trying to fool us. They're trying to trick us into doing something. Um, and and that's, what, that's what's being heard. Your conversation is not being heard. So you want to take those voices out of the head through these first three steps, and then finally you're in a position now where you're in the head. I always give people that, anyone remember the movie uh, just a couple years ago, um, Inside Out? It was that cartoon, right, about inside of the little teenage girl's brain and all the little things that were controlling her thoughts and stuff, right? And I, I tend to think of my brain as that way. You know, I got a bunch of different pieces, a bunch of different people in control at different times. But guess what? I also have people on the outside that are sometimes in control, that I let control my thoughts. You know, my wife is one of them, okay? I freely admit it, you know? I often make decisions, I've been married for 30 years, and I often make decisions by thinking, what would Janet do? Or what would Janet say I should do, right? I mean, I, I, I let her influence me, and I do it voluntarily, and you know what? She's a lot smarter than me, she has better judgment than I do, so I'm better off for it, okay? But I let other people in. That's what this is all about. This is about having this person who wants to fight you otherwise now suddenly let you in at the controls and give you some influence over what they're thinking. And finally, that leads to your ability to influence behavioral change by offering alternatives. You don't offer directives. You don't offer commands. You don't tell somebody, this is what you must do. This is what, you know, and I've fallen in this trap in mediations telling people, no, this is the only reasonable settlement. This is how you should decide this thing. No, it's instead, it's getting in there with that sense of rapport and saying, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about this option? What do you think about this option? Hey, you know, they're suggesting this. What if we change that just a little bit and we got it over here? Um, 
And frankly, now that once you're inside, once you're inside there and you have some influence, they're, they're going to consider those things. They may not agree with them completely, but they're at least going to start considering them. And eventually, eventually the goal is you hit on something that they can agree with. Okay, so that is the, um, that's basically the, uh, the stairway model. Um, I've got a lot more materials on that in your, um, in your outlines. Uh, and it's something that I'm going to be talking about more here in the future because I'm doing reading and things about it right now for, not just for work, uh, but because I think it's a, it's a fascinating approach to helping change other people's behavior that can be applied to what we do. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's where I'm at right now. Um, I certainly appreciate your attention. Um, I also tell people, you know, I enjoy the fact that we have a very collegial uh, um, industry, right, uh, profession. Um, I don't mind people calling up when they have a problem and saying, hey, Bill, I was at your seminar a couple months ago, you know, and I'm dealing with this issue, and I don't really know how to deal with this. And, you know, I was thinking maybe I might try this or might try, or, you know, have you, you ever dealt with this, okay? Um, I do that to people all the time. I have people I've known for years who do that all the time. And I love it when people call up and I actually realize that, you know, at least maybe one little thing I said sparked a thought uh, in someone else. And, you know, understand, you know, the, you get what you pay for. Um, my advice may not be that great. I may be a blank slate and tell you, man, I have no clue. That's a really tough one. Good luck with that. But I will try, right? I will try. Um, and I encourage people to do that. Uh, and, and every once in a while, people take me up on that, and I really enjoy it. I really enjoy that interaction, and never too busy to do it. So um, thank you. Thank you for the work you do, uh, and thank you for paying attention to my ramblings. And again, I hope that we can talk or meet uh, down the road. Please turn in your evaluations, and if you don't already have your parking validated, Kim will uh, validate your parking. Thanks, everyone. Drive carefully. Thank you.